Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 6 The Demons and the Philosophers Part 4 that it is necessary to say at this point a word about that invisible yet vivid borderline that we cross in passing from the Mediterranean into the mystery of the East. Perhaps there are no things out of which we get so little of the truth as the truisms, especially when they are really true. We are all in the habit of saying certain things about Asia, which are true enough, but which hardly help us because we do not understand their truth as that Asia is old, or looks to the past, or is not progressive. Now it is true that Christendom is more progressive, in a sense that has very little to do with the rather provincial notion of an endless fuss of political improvement. Christendom does believe, for Christianity does believe, that man can eventually get somewhere, here or hereafter, or in various ways according to various doctrines. The world's desire can somehow be satisfied as desires are satisfied, whether by a new life or an old love of some form of positive possession and fulfillment. For the rest, we all know there is a rhythm, and not a mere progress in things, that things rise and fall. Only with us the rhythm is a fairly free and incalculable rhythm. For most of Asia, the rhythm has hardened into a recurrence. It is no longer merely a rather topsy-turvy sort of world. It is a wheel. What has happened to all those highly intelligent and highly civilized peoples is that they have been caught up in a sort of cosmic rotation, of which the hollow hub is really nothing. In that sense, the worst part of existence is that it may just as well go on like that forever. That is what we really mean when we say that Asia is old or unprogressive or looking backwards. That is why we see even her curved swords as arcs broken from that blinding wheel, why we see her serpentine ornament as returning everywhere, like a snake that is never slain. It has very little to do with the political varnish of progress. All Asiatics might have top hats on their heads, but if they had this spirit still in their hearts, they would only think the hats would vanish and come round again like the planets. Not that running after a hat could lead them to heaven, or even to home. Now when the genius of Buddha arose to deal with the matter, this sort of cosmic sentiment was already common to almost everything in the East. There was indeed the jungle of an extraordinarily extravagant and almost asphyxiating mythology. Nevertheless, it is possible to have more sympathy with this popular fruitfulness in folklore than with some of the higher pessimism that might have withered it. It must always be remembered, however, when all fair allowances are made, that a great deal of spontaneous Eastern imagery really is idolatry, the local and literal worship of an idol. This is probably not true of the ancient Brahmanical system, at least as seen by Brahmins, but that phrase alone will remind us of a reality of much greater moment. This great reality is the caste system of ancient India. It may have had some of the practical advantages of the guild system of medieval Europe, but it contrasts not only with that Christian democracy, but with every extreme type of Christian aristocracy, 
in the fact that it does really conceive the social superiority as a spiritual superiority. This not only divides it fundamentally from the fraternity of Christendom, but leaves it standing like a mighty and terraced mountain of pride between the relatively egalitarian levels both of Islam and of China. But the fixity of this formation through thousands of years is another illustration of that spirit of repetition that has marked time from time immemorial. Now we may also presume the prevalence of another idea, which we associate with the Buddhists, as interpreted by the Theosophists. As a fact, some of the strictest Buddhists repudiate the idea, and still more scornfully repudiate the Theosophists. But whether the idea is in Buddhism, or only in the birthplace of Buddhism, or only in a tradition or a travesty of Buddhism, it is an idea entirely proper to this principle of recurrence. I mean, of course, the idea of reincarnation. But reincarnation is not really a mystical idea. It is not really a transcendental idea, or, in that sense, a religious idea. Mysticism conceives something transcending experience. Religion seeks glimpses of a better good or a worse evil than experience can give. Reincarnation need only extend experience in the sense of repeating them. It is no more transcendental for a man to remember what he did in Babylon before he was born than to remember what he did in Brixton before he had a knock on the head. His successive lives need not be any more than human lives, under whatever limitations burden human life. It has nothing to do with seeing God or even conjuring up the devil. In other words, reincarnation as such does not necessarily escape from the wheel of destiny. In some sense, it is the wheel of destiny. And whether it was something that Buddha founded, or something that Buddha found, or something that Buddha entirely renounced when he found, it is certainly something having the general character of that Asiatic atmosphere in which he had to play his part. And the part he played was that of an intellectual philosopher, with a particular theory about the right intellectual attitude towards it. I can understand that Buddhists might resent the view that Buddhism is merely a philosophy, if we understand by a philosophy merely an intellectual game such as Greek sophists played, tossing up worlds and catching them like balls. Perhaps a more exact statement would be that Buddha was a man who made a metaphysical discipline, which might even be called a psychological discipline. He proposed a way of escaping from all this recurrent sorrow, and that was simply by getting rid of the delusion that is called desire. It was emphatically not that we should get what we want better by restraining our impatience for part of it, or that we should get it in a better way or in a better world. It was emphatically that we should leave off wanting it. If once a man realized that there is really no reality, that everything, including his soul, is in dissolution at every instant, he would anticipate disappointment and be intangible to change. Existing, in so far as he could be said to exist, in a sort of ecstasy of indifference. The Buddhists call this beatitude, and we will not stop our story to argue the point. Certainly to us it is indistinguishable from despair. I do not see, for instance, why the disappointment of desire should not apply as much to the most benevolent desires as to the most selfish ones. Indeed, the Lord of Compassion seems to pity people for living rather than for dying. For the rest, an intelligent Buddhist wrote, quote, 
The explanation of popular Chinese and Japanese Buddhism is that it is not Buddhism. End quote. That has doubtless ceased to be a mere philosophy, but only by becoming a mere mythology. One thing is certain it has never become anything remotely resembling what we call a church. It will appear only a jest to say that all religious history has really been a pattern of noughts and crosses. But I do not by noughts mean nothings, but only things that are negative compared with the positive shape or pattern of the other. And though the symbol is of course only a coincidence, it is a coincidence that really does coincide. The mind of Asia can really be represented by a round zero, if not in the sense of a cipher, at least of a circle. The great Asiatic symbol of a serpent with its tail in its mouth is really a very perfect image of a certain idea of unity and recurrence that does indeed belong to the Eastern philosophies and religions. It really is a curve that in one sense includes everything, and in another sense comes to nothing. In that sense it does confess, or rather boast, that all argument is an argument in a circle. And though the figure is but a symbol, we can see how sound is the symbolic sense that produces it. The parallel symbol of the wheel of Buddha, generally called the swastika. The cross is a thing at right angles pointing boldly in opposite directions. But the swastika is the same thing in the very act of returning to the recurrent curve. That crooked cross is in fact a cross turning into a wheel. Before we dismiss even these symbols as if they were arbitrary symbols, we must remember how intense was the imaginative instinct that produced them, or selected them both in the East and the West. The cross has become something more than a historical memory. It does convey, almost as by a mathematical diagram, the truth about the real point at issue, the idea of a conflict stretching outwards into eternity. It is true and even tautological, to say that the cross is the crux of the whole matter. In other words, the cross, in fact as well as figure, does really stand for the idea of breaking out of the circle that is everything and nothing. It does escape from the circular argument by which everything begins and ends in the mind. Since we are still dealing in symbols, it might be put in a parable in the form of that story about St. Francis which says that the birds departing with his benediction could wing their way into the infinities of the four winds of heaven, their tracks making a vast cross upon the sky. For compared with the freedom of that flight of birds, the very shape of the swastika is like a kitten chasing its tail. In a more popular allegory, we might say that when St. George thrust his spear into the monster's jaws, he broke in upon the solitude of the self-devouring serpent and gave it something to bite besides its own tail. But while many fancies might be used as figures of the truth, the truth itself is abstract and absolute, though it is not very easy to sum up except by such figures. Christianity does appeal to a solid truth outside itself, to something which is, in that sense, external as well as eternal. It does declare that things are really there, or in other words, that things are really things. In this, Christianity is at one with common sense. But all religious history shows that this common sense perishes, except where there is Christianity to preserve it.
it cannot otherwise exist, or at least endure, because mere thought does not remain sane. In a sense, it becomes too simple to be sane. The temptation of the philosophers is simplicity rather than subtlety. They are always attracted by insane simplifications. As men poised above abysses are fascinated by death and nothingness and the empty air. It needed another kind of philosopher to stand poised upon the pinnacle of the temple and keep his balance without casting himself down. One of these obvious, these two obvious explanations, is that everything is a dream and a delusion, and there is nothing outside the ego. Another is that all things recur. Another, which is said to be Buddhist and is certainly Oriental, is the idea that what is the matter with us is our creation in the sense of our colored differentiation and personality, and that nothing will be well till we are again melted into one unity. By this theory, in short, the creation was the fall. It is important historically because it was stored up in the dark heart of Asia and went forth at various times in various forms over the dim borders of Europe. Here we can place the mysterious figure of Manes, or Manichaeus, the mystic of inversion whom we should call a pessimist, parent of many sects and heresies. Here, in a higher place, the figure of Zoroaster. He has been popularly identified with another of these two simple explanations, the equality of evil and good, balanced and battling in every atom. He also is of the school of sages that may be called mystics, and from the same mysterious Persian garden came upon ponderous wings Mithras the unknown god, to trouble the last twilight of Rome. That circle, or disk of the sun, set up in the morning of the world by the remote Egyptian, has been a mirror and a model for all the philosophers. They have made many things out of it, and sometimes gone mad about it, especially when, as in these eastern sages, the circle became a wheel going round and round in their heads. But the point about them is that they all think that existence can be represented by a diagram instead of a drawing, and the rude drawings of the childish mythmakers are a sort of crude and spirited protest against that view. They cannot believe that religion is really not a pattern, but a picture. Still less can they believe that it is a picture of something that really exists outside our minds. Sometimes the philosopher paints the disc all black and calls himself a pessimist. Sometimes he paints it all white and calls himself an optimist. Sometimes he divides it exactly into halves of black and white and calls himself a dualist, like those Persian mystics to whom I wish there were space to do justice. None of them could understand a thing that began to draw the proportions just as if they were real proportions, disposed in the living fashion which the mathematical draftsman would call disproportionate. Like the first artist in the cave, it revealed to incredulous eyes the suggestion of a new purpose in what looked like a wildly crooked pattern. He seemed only to be distorting his diagram when he began for the first time in all the ages to trace the lines of a form and of a face. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, 
will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.